There are so many religions in the world. How are they similar and how are they different? We need to know. The culturally correct view is to blend them all together as equally relevant and legitimate. But is that true? Prior to becoming a follower of Jesus, your host, Mike Shreve, was an avid seeker of truth, exploring many paths to spirituality. One of his passions now is to help bridge the gap so that others can discover the true light, which gives light to everyone entering the world. Now, here's Mike Shreve revealing the true light. Welcome to Revealing the True Light. I have a controversial and important question to ask you. Is the chanting of mantras a powerful way of awakening the Christ nature and an aid to achieving enlightenment, as many teach, or is it an incorrect and futile attempt at penetrating the realm of the supernatural? This question needs to be answered because millions upon millions of people are involved in the chanting of mantras, and many deeply sincere in doing so. What is a mantra? A mantra is a sacred syllable, sound, or group of words that is often in Sanskrit, and practitioners believe that these mantras have religious or spiritual power attached to them and can accomplish certain things supernaturally. And it's all about transfer because the chanting of mantras is an attempt to transfer something from the realm of the conceptual to the realm of the actual. In other words, it connects two realms. When you chant the mantras, you pull something from the invisible realm down into the visible realm in some kind of manifestation or some kind of internal experience within your body, soul, and spirit. This is an important statement, and I want you to remember this. I probably will repeat it. If a method of approaching God is too mechanical, too mindless, too monotonous, too monotone, too magical, manipulative, mundane, or even overly mystical, it's probably not the right approach. Let me say that again. If something purported to be an approach to God is too mechanical, too mindless, too monotonous, too monotone, too mundane or magical or manipulative or even mystical, is probably not the right approach to God. The correct approach is very simple and very heartfelt, and it's a connection between you and a Heavenly Father who loves you deeply and wants to commune with you and wants to connect with you as you worship Him. He wants to respond back in a very personal and beautiful way. But human beings invent these methods that are supposed to aid uh, something that we all need. There's a God-shaped hole within every human being that must be filled with the presence of God. And many different religions come up with different practices that are supposed to achieve the goal of filling up that hole with the reality that makes us 
W-H-O-L-E, whole. And so I understand why people do it. However, have you ever noticed that the root of the word monotonous is the word monotone? And if something is really monotone, it means it's a dull, repetitive tone. It doesn't have much variety in it, and it kind of stills the mind, but it's the root of the word monotonous. And if something is monotonous to you, listen, it's probably monotonous to God because God is not a machine. God is not a computer-like program into which you insert the right kind of uh, programming in order to achieve the desired results. That's not the way God works. God is a personal God. I, I believe that the chanting of mantras is a certain type of self-hypnosis because self-hypnosis is the induction of a state of consciousness in which a person apparently loses the power of voluntary action and is highly responsive to suggestion or direction or outside influences. And when a person is involved in the chanting of mantras, it actually brings them to a place of being sensitive to and vulnerable to outside influences. And I'll get more into that later. But I want to share with you first what I used to do back in 1970 when I was a devotee of Kundalini Yoga. And I was extremely committed. Every morning we would get up at 3.30 in the morning in the yoga ashram I ran. And usually we started the day with two hours of mantra chanting. And this was every single day. And that wasn't the only time I was chanting, but our entire group would be chanting together every morning for two hours. And I was deeply sincere. I wanted to know God. I wanted to be one with God. I was so thirsty for spiritual reality. I was so thirsty to be filled and to have that God-shaped hole in me filled up so I could come to wholeness in my life. And I believed the teaching that I heard in Kundalini Yoga that the mantra I chanted would help to achieve that goal. And so I was committed to it. If it took 10 years, 20 years, millions of repetitions, I was willing to do it. But it's not that complicated. It really isn't that complicated. Now, I really don't like to repeat this very often. I very seldom mention the mantra that I used to use. But for the sake of example, I'm going to share it right now. It would go like this. Ekonkar Satnam Siriwa Guru. And each of those words has a particular meaning. Uh, for instance, Ekonkar means there is only one God. Satnam means truth is his name. And Siriwa Guru means the Holy Spirit is our teacher. One Kundalini Yoga website I visited altered the meaning of that last statement uh, to great beyond description is his infinite wisdom. 
Siriwa Guru. Instead of the Spirit is my teacher, great beyond description is his infinite wisdom. Either way, surprisingly, and this is a surprising thing to some people, and it certainly was to me in the very beginning, all of those statements are true within a biblical framework of interpretation. When it's outside of a biblical interpretation, they take on different meanings. But for instance, the first statement meant there is only one God. Well, there is only one God. But when you use that phrase as a Hindu or a New Ager that is implementing Hindu methods to try and achieve enlightenment or samadhi or Christ consciousness or self-realization, self-awareness, there's a lot of ways of describing it, then uh, that statement means something totally different because most people involved in that mindset believe that God is an impersonal force that flows through the entire universe. Everything has a divine essence at its core because they have the pantheistic view that the universe is an emanation of God and there is only one God because all the religions of the world and all the names given to God and all the descriptions given to God all blend together into one. It's an all-inclusive idea that there is only one God, and that means the God of the Hindus, the God of the Muslims, the God of the Jews, the God of the Christians, the God of the Sikhs, is only one God. It's the same God. Well, I don't believe that now, because as a Christian, I believe there is only one God, but it's not an all-inclusive statement. It's an exclusive statement. It excludes all other interpretations of the nature of God, because I believe the true God is comprised of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one God. No other religion describes the Godhead that way. And you can't blend them all together because there's such contradictions in the interpretation of the nature of God from religion to religion. So I was chanting a statement that was true, Ekankar meant there is only one God, but I was interpreting it in a false way. And then the next statement is Satnam. Now, in the Sikh worldview, Satnam is one of the primary names given to God. Truth is his name. Well, in a sense, that is a correct statement because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life in John 14, 6. However, That's not a personal name given to him. Truth is a descriptive name. It's a descriptive title, if you will, but it's not his name. His name is Jesus. His name is Yeshua um, in the Hebrew. And then finally, the Spirit is my teacher. However, and I explain it in my book, In Search of the True Light, I've actually got a chapter called Mantras, are these repetitious phrases a valid tool in reaching God. And I explain concerning that last statement, Siri Waguru, that is interpreted to mean the Spirit is our teacher. The thing is, if you're involved in Eastern religions, the Holy Spirit is not teaching you yet. The Holy Spirit doesn't come to teach you until you're regenerated, until you're born again. Because he said, to as many as receive him, to them gave he the power to become the sons of God. That's John chapter 1, verse 12. 
And then another scripture says, they that are led by the Spirit are the sons of God. So you can discover who a true son of God is if that person is truly led by the Holy Spirit, taught by the Holy Spirit, instructed by the Holy Spirit. And that only happens when the Holy Spirit comes to dwell within us, and he only comes to dwell within us when we receive a new spirit, that regenerative experience called being born again. It's uh, unique to Christianity. It doesn't happen in any other worldview. And by the way, I would urge you to get this book, In Search of the True Light, because it is packed full of contrast and comparison between Hinduism and Christianity, Buddhism and Christianity, Sikhism and Christianity. Over 20 religions are compared in that book. Now, what is the purpose of chanting mantras? If you were to go on the internet, and type that in, you'd probably come up with about six definite goals that people uh, set before them when they chant mantras. Number one is to empty the mind of random thoughts, which is supposedly a necessity for successful meditation. Meditation in Eastern religions and New Age spirituality involves emptying the mind. Biblical meditation is quite different. It's filling the mind as you meditate on God's Word. In fact, I did two interviews on the difference between Christian meditation and Buddhist meditation that you can go and listen to on the truelight.net. And also there's an article on the truelight.net about the difference between Christian and Uh, Far Eastern meditation practices. But anyway, number one is to empty the mind of random thoughts. Number two, to achieve focus. And the two kind of go together. Number three, to summon the influence, to invoke the influence of certain deities. Number four, it is supposedly an aid to achieving enlightenment. Number five, some gurus teach that Chanting mantras actually burns up negative karma. And so it somehow uh, helps you escape the cycle of rebirth sooner. And then number six, it's a means of having mystical experiences in higher spiritual realms. Those are the six reasons, the six purposes behind chanting mantras to empty the mind of random thoughts, to achieve focus, to summon the influence of certain deities. It's an aid in achieving enlightenment. It burns up negative karma, and it enables a person to have mystical experiences. One of the main mantras that is chanted within the realm of Hinduism and of course New Age spirituality that draws heavily from Hinduism is the word Om which is taught to be the primordial sound. It was the sound that accompanied the manifestation of the universe. And so if you chant that word OM, it's like you come into the same vibration level where your spirit is vibrating with the same energy vibration that brought forth the universe. And so you become one with the universal mind, one with the universal oversoul by chanting a mantra, a single-syllable mantra. Actually, though, when it's chanted, those who do it stretch it out into three syllables. 
and it's somewhat like A-U-M. And it's an invocation to three Hindu deities. The A connects with Brahma, the creator god. The U connects with Vishnu, the preserver god. And the M connects with Shiva, the destroyer god. And so when a person chants that word, they are invoking Hindu deities to come and inhabit their lives, inhabit their bodies, merge with them and and become one with them and grant them certain supernatural power. I did a podcast just on the word Om, and I would urge you to go listen to it. Uh, it's listed under the podcast on the truelight.net. Now, this may shock you that some Catholics advocate the chanting of mantras. In fact, I visited one website when I was preparing for this podcast, and I'd never really completely realized this before, but uh, catholicidentity.bne.catholic.edu.au that's the address of the website, says the rosary has been used within the Catholic tradition as a form of a contemplative mantra, as well as for meditation on the lives of Jesus and Mary. So when you pray the rosary, uh, you, you have certain steps you have to take. You declare the Apostles' Creed, you say the Our Father, you say the Hail Mary, you say the Glory Be to God, you repeat these prayers over and over. There's five decades in the rosary, that five groups of ten prayers where you say the Hail Mary, and then at the end of each one of those decades, you say the Our Father. Well, when Jesus gave us the Our Father, and it's been traditionally called the Lord's Prayer, I don't believe he ever intended it for uh, intended for it to be just repeated over and over until it's almost a mindless repetition of that prayer. He gave it as a framework of prayer, a way to approach God by taking each line of that prayer and approaching God in a similar way, but a creative way out of your heart, out of your spirit, approaching God like our Father who art in heaven. You acknowledge his supremacy. You acknowledge his greatness. You're the high and holy God, our Father in heaven. I love you. I, I adore you. you. You have to be real when you approach God. You have to be spontaneous. You have to be creative in the flow of emotion, in the flow of words that come from your heart and your mind. And so Jesus gave the Lord's Prayer not for it to be repeated thousands and thousands of times. I did it as a Catholic. You had to say penance in order to be forgiven of your sins when you went to confession. And usually the priest would tell you to say, Ten Our Fathers. And you just, you know, when you're a child, I was about, uh, uh, well, when I was a youngster, I guess six until 12, I went to confession as a Catholic, and I would repeat those prayers as fast as I could just to get through it. Well, there was no connection with God. That was just an empty ritual. But anyway, it said the rosary has been used within the Catholic tradition as a form of a contemplative mantra. Contemplative prayer 
is very similar to the way Buddhists and Hindus meditate in order to achieve oneness with the oversoul, or in the case of Buddhism, in order to achieve nirvana. On that same website, I read on, and I just shook my head, because I I love Catholics. They're very sincere. They love God, and yet they've adopted some of these practices that are not biblical. For instance, uh, in that same article, the World Community for Christian Meditation recommends as a mantra the ancient Christian word, and they call it a prayer word, Maranatha. Now, the word Maranatha is found in Paul's writings, and it means, come Lord Jesus. And so they instruct people to stretch it out into four syllables, ma ra na tha and to say that over and over and over hundreds of times in order to be an aid in meditation. And then it went on to describe something that's been called the Jesus Prayer. And that's a very popular prayer among monks and very devoted Catholics. And it's something that you're supposed to repeat all day long. Some people are very, very religious about repeating it hundreds of times during a day's span. And it's a very simple prayer. Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And this particular website added breath work to the uttering of the Jesus prayer. So they say, when you say, Jesus Christ, breathe in. When you say, Son of the living God, breathe out. When you say, have mercy on me, breathe in. And when you say, a sinner, you breathe out. And that's supposed to connect you with God. God does not respond to something that mechanical. And besides, you don't want to repeat a phrase hundreds of times to gain God's attention. It has to be heartfelt. Even Mahatma Gandhi, who was a Hindu, unfortunately, he was very mistreated by some who professed Christianity to the point where he said, I love your Christ, but I don't like your Christians. And, and he, was, uh, he, he was very rudely treated by those that threw him out of their church because he was not white Anglo-Saxon. He was of a darker skin color, which is horrendous, which is abominable in the sight of God. All men are created equal. But anyway, he said, it is better in prayer to have a heart without words than words without a heart. And that's really true. And that really describes what mantra yoga becomes, words without a heart. Let me tell you a story. I wear a ring that is identical to a ring that my wife has. And there's Hebrew lettering. I wish you could see it. I don't think he can, but there's Hebrew lettering all around the ring. And it's a statement out of the Song of Solomon. I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. Now, just suppose I wanted to have a time of communion with my wife where we really connect conversationally and we really have a heart-to-heart connection. Would I walk into a room where she's at and in a monotone way, 
Make sure I breathe in when I say, I am my beloved's. And then breathe out when I say, my beloved is mine. And say it in the same tone of voice. I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. Breathing in the same pattern, saying the same thing. By the time I did that four or five times, she would be on the phone calling the men that would bring a straight jacket in the ambulance that would arrive in our driveway because she would know I've gone start raving mad. You don't communicate with a fellow human being that way because if I were to try and repeat it hundreds and then even thousands of times, that's not going to aid our heart-to-heart communication. It's actually going to repel. And see, I practice something called mantra yoga. It's one of the main divisions of yoga. You've got mantra yoga, hatha yoga, Uh, you've got uh, Raja Yoga, Kundalini Yoga. You've got a lot of different kinds of yoga. I'll teach you on that one day. But Mantra Yoga is specifically an attempt to become one with the Oversoul, one with God, because yoga means yoke, and it implies being yoked with God, being one with God through the chanting of mantras. But it repels God. It doesn't attract him. Do mantras achieve their purpose? Repetition does calm the mind. It's kind of a self-hypnosis. And so a semblance of peace will be experienced. I know I experienced a certain measure of peace after I came out of two hours of chanting a mantra. It is very calming to the mind, but it is not the peace of God. It's not the peace of God. Because when I experienced the peace of God, it was infinitely greater than what I experienced when I just chanted mantras. Also, chanting mantras does not attract God, but it can attract demonic entities. Some mantras are probably neutral, where they attract neither God nor demons, But some mantras, especially those that involve the names of certain deities, will attract the demons who impersonate those deities, or if they have certain meanings in occult vocabulary, then they attract the demons that will try and replicate that experience or uh, cause that experience to happen in order to give a false impression of the effectiveness of the mantra. Because the enemy, uh, the devil and his demons, Satan and his demonic underlings, do not want you to experience the true and the living God. Now, finally, at the close of this teaching, let me ask you what Jesus had to say about the chanting of mantras. Do you know? Because many New Agers, when I was a New Ager, when I was a yoga advocate, I used a lot of the things Jesus said to try and undergird what I taught in order to validate it because he taught it. So there must be some truth to it. But when it comes to chanting mantras, Jesus was absolutely the opposite in his mindset, which is very strange because I used to teach that during the hidden years between 12 and 30, and when I say used to teach, I'm talking over 50 years ago when I taught yoga at four universities, 
I used to teach that Jesus spent those 18 years between 12 and 30 that are silent years in the Bible. There's no indication of what went on during those years uh, except for a few um, implications, but nothing definitely stated. I taught that he had spent those 18 years studying under Indian swamis and gurus in the Far East in order to awaken his Christ nature. Well, why in the world then did he come back and definitely say not to use their methods? Because in Matthew chapter 6, verse 7, he said, use not vain repetitions like the heathen do, because they think that they'll be heard for their much speaking. Many New Agers think that Jesus was an avatar, an incarnation of God on earth. And an avatar can only speak the truth. Yogi Bhajan, in fact, taught that. Uh, The guru I studied under over five decades ago, he said an avatar could only speak the truth. Then why did Jesus say not to use the approach of mantras? One last thing. I've had people who are very committed to the chanting of mantras point out a scripture to me to try and disprove my point of view. They say, why in the book of Revelation do you have the four living creatures repeating something over and over again? Let me read the passage. It's Revelation chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. And this is when John had a vision of the throne room of God. And in the throne room, there were living creatures, which most likely were cherubim. And the first living creature was like a lion. The second living creature was like a calf. The third living creature was like a man. And the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures each had six wings and were full of eyes around and within. And another description said they were full of eyes before and behind because that was a way of symbolically showing they had great insight and understanding into the future, into the past, externally and internally. And they do not rest day or night crying, Holy, Holy, Holy Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And so I've had New Agers withstand me or not so much withstand me, we were just uh, lovingly discussing the concept of truth and whether or not these are relevant things to do and effective things to do. And they would say, well, look at right there. The, the Bible talks about these four living creatures repeating this over and over. They cease not day or night saying, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, heaven and earth are full of your glory or holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. So aren't they chanting a mantra? No, the purpose of chanting a mantra is to achieve oneness with God or to come into the presence of God. But they're already in the presence of God, and they're not trying to achieve oneness with God. They're fully... Uh, immersed in the glory of God. So they're not trying to achieve anything. They are celebrating the glory that they are in the midst of, the presence of God they're already consumed by. And I believe when we get into the presence of God eternally, we may shout hallelujah for a thousand years, and it will feel fresh and alive and beautiful 
every single time we say it. It won't be mantra-like. It won't be the droning, boring sound, the numbing, the mind-numbing sound of a mantra-like statement. It will be the ecstasy of heaven. Praise God. Well, I think we've covered the subject about as good as it can be covered. I do urge you to go to the truelight.net, and there is an article there on the, the whole idea of chanting mantras. And also, there are two interviews there where I talk about the difference between Far Eastern meditation in Taoism, Buddhism, and Hinduism, and biblical meditation. And that ties right in with what I had to say on this podcast episode. And as I've said many times, be sure to get the book in search of the true light. And when you go to the truelight.net, download my personal testimony in detail. It's shared in a booklet called The Highest Adventure, Encountering God. Thank you for joining Mike Shreve today on Revealing the True Light. And thank you for opening your mind and your heart to the truth. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, cpnshows.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss new episodes. You can explore the beliefs of many world religions more deeply by ordering Mike Shree's book titled In Search of the True Light. We also invite you to visit our website, thetruelight.net, and sign up to be part of our global internet family.